0: So we have the privilege this morning of gathering, we have the freedom to gather, isn't that wonderful? And uh, the opportunity to continue on and engaging our study of the book of Mark, which we've really entitled uh, a question, uh, who is this Jesus? And we've been finding answers, actually. So this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, and before we go there, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come before you, we recognize that you are the Lord. We're grateful for the freedom you've given us to gather in this place, to sing praise to your, to your name we're grateful for the gift of your son Jesus Christ and the salvation that comes by him and the sanctifying work that you're doing by your Holy Spirit who dwells within each one who is called by your name. And as we subject ourselves to your word, God, we ask, we invite you to teach us that we'd be changed as a result of having an encounter with you that we'd never be the same. And so our expectation, God, is that you love to come through in these ways so we have a confidence to pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, take your Bibles then and turn to Mark uh, Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, and we've seen through the last several weeks, we've been getting to know more about Christ and who he is and what he's like, his compassion, his authority, his power. Even up until last week when Pastor Scott was teaching us really a a famous story that may have a forgotten message for for some of you, the story of feeding the 5,000, probably even thousands more than that. Do you remember that one where Jesus found, uh, was given to him a Lunchable and he just kept Tearing it and tearing it and making it toward everyone had what they needed. And do you remember the end of that story? There was some leftover. How many baskets of leftovers were there? Twelve. How many disciples are there? Is that coincidence? Because it was the disciples that were asked to go pick up the extras. So Jesus is doing something more than just feeding people. He's doing something for his disciples to recognize who he is. But it's tough for them. And so we come to our passage today right after that miracle had taken place. Look at Mark chapter 6, verse 45, verse to verse, as is our style every week. Look at verse 45. Immediately, and there's that word that Mark loves to use, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while his disciple, uh, while he dismissed the crowd. And so what we have here is uh, this is actually um, a stern demand that uh, Jesus is demanding his disciples leave and uh, Scholars and commentators uh, suggest that the reason why this is happening is we know from other accounts that people would rise up after Jesus did amazing miracles, that they want to force Jesus to be their king by their demand. And so some believe that the reason why Jesus, a reason why Jesus is sending his disciples to go away immediately is because of what was happening in the crowd. So he sends the disciples one way, he sends the crowd another. Who sends the disciples to the sea? Who sends them? That's important to remember. Mark chapter 6 verse 45, if you're taking notes, just write this note down. Jesus sends... After the miraculous feeding, Jesus insisted his disciples sail toward Bethsaida. Now, some scholars said this was about like a four-mile journey. They'd usually sail along the shore. And so some people believe this would be about a four-mile journey by water. And Jesus was the one to send them. Don't forget that. Jesus sends. Look at the next verse, verse 46. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Note here, Jesus prays. Jesus sends and Jesus prays. Why did Jesus go to the mountain? To pray. And have you ever wondered this? If Jesus is himself God, who is he praying to? The answer, of course, in the scriptures tells us that he actually engages his father. Now, why would Jesus pray if he himself is God? Oftentimes we pray that God might change his mind about something or that he would give us what we grant, but what we see with Jesus' style is that he's always engaging the father because the Scriptures say that he only does and says what the father tells him. So it's interesting because what we have here is uh, some teachings here about the God, Godhead. Three and one is what we teach. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, of course, but we know that there's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus, the Father and the Spirit are equal in value, different in function. That Jesus actually serves according to the Father's will. And so we know that Jesus often went alone to pray. You think if he would have to do that, how much more would we have to? Something to consider. So what would Jesus talk to God about? I mean, Jesus doesn't have anxieties. What would he speak to them about? And I have an idea. The scriptures actually inform this idea. I I believe that what Jesus brings to the Father actually is, is people people in his heart and on his mind. We actually catch a glimpse of that in John chapter 17, one of my favorite chapters. Jesus is in the garden uh, of the night of his betrayal, and he's, uh, he's praying in the garden. And you'll see this in John chapter 17, that in the beginning he prays a bit of himself. That's only who I'd be praying for if I was about to face what he's going to face prays a bit for himself. Then he prays for the disciples whom he said he loved and he gave himself up for and that he didn't lose the ones that got appointed to him. And then he prays for all who will believe because of their, meaning the disciples' testimony, which means he was praying for you if you're in Christ. Isn't that incredible? Why does Jesus pray? Being in tune with the Father, what does he pray for? I think he prays for people. The book of Hebrews tells us that he's like this one that's interceding for us. In fact, First John, John writes in his letter To his readers in John chapter 2, verse 1, can we show that, Randy? My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, who would that be? (laughs) Yeah, thank you for having the boldness to be authentic in this church. Me and you, just us two, okay? (laughs) We have so much work to do. Ten years we've been here. But if anybody does sin, we have one who, what does he do? Speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I think Jesus engages his Father, listening to the Father's will and also brings people before him. It's evidence in the scripture. So I think it'd be safe to assume, if you would, when Jesus goes to the mountainside, the ones that he's praying, what he's talking about the Father about is what he's just done by sending his disciples into the sea. He sends, he prays. Isn't it incredible to consider that Christ might be praying for you right now as the scripture tell us? Why would he care? What have you done for him? And that the scripture says he does. So I think Jesus in our text is praying for his disciples. Look at verse 47 and 48 with me. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone in the land, talking about Jesus. Verse 48, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking in the lake, and he was about to pass by them. Verse 47 and verse 48, Verse 48, the first phrase there says, he saw the disciples. So Jesus sends, Jesus prays, Jesus sees. So now it's evening, the, the boat is in the middle of the lake, and if you've ever been in this lake, I mean, there is indeed a middle, it's far. And now what's happening in the middle is uh, the disciples are facing some distress in the boat, there's a wind. And then the other account that we see of this same story in the book of John, we know that there's waves, there is a storm. And it's, It's a struggle. I don't know if you've ever been on a boat before that's um, facing a struggle. I have. And uh, when I was a kid, we uh, had family that lived out near the Gulf Coast in Florida. And so my uncle had a little boat and arranged for our family to be with him on this little boat to go out into the Gulf a little bit. And as a child, that's a lie. My whole life, I've struggled with anxiety. And every movie I've ever seen with boats that have trouble in the water, it goes bad for the people. Anyone ever seen Poseidon Adventure? So we went out, the motor failed, and I have a couple fears of things. Sharks, which I actually did see one a couple weeks ago, it swam between some friends and I and our kids. And man, I really wanted to have a try at it, but I had kids in my hands, so I couldn't do anything about it, you know. The boat uh, basically fails, the engine uh, stops, and so we are completely stuck. But There's no sale on this thing, and I'm thinking, this is it. I'm 12 years old, and I have to decide. I'll probably eat my brother first, I guess. I don't know who is going to, probably him. I was scared, you know. I have no experience. The people I was with don't have a lot of experience. We look at this story. When you put yourself into a story, a lot of times we put ourselves as they hear in the story, like we're Jesus, but let's put ourselves in the idea here that we're like the disciples. And these guys actually, though, are pros. Four of them for sure fishermen, maybe seven of them. That, that, that were fishermen. They would know what to do. And they faced tough winds before and storms before, I'm sure. They're, they're legit. However, the last time we saw them facing a storm, Pastor Scott taught us in Mark chapter four that Jesus actually was with, with them in the boat. This time he's not. He's nowhere in sight. And the text tells us that we just read that it's the fourth watch of the night now. So he sent them at evening. It's the fourth watch of the night, which is actually between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So let's say Jesus sent them up at 7 p.m. A 6 p.m. dinner just happened. He sent them up at 7 p.m., and they've been straining till 4 a.m. That's nine hours of struggle. Nine hours of battling. I don't know if you've ever been on a rowing machine before. Nine hours is a tough one. I'm looking at a couple of people that I think can do it, though. It's a tough one. They're in some serious trouble and exhausted, I'm sure, and I wonder, if you just put yourself in the position, I'm wondering if they're thinking to themselves, how long is this going to be, and is there an end, and is it, is it my end? Will we even survive? Have you ever felt like that in your trouble? Have you ever felt like, as the psalmist writes, oh Lord, how long? How long, oh Lord? You're in the middle of it, but Jesus seems uh, forever away, and you wonder if he even knows what's going on. Job loss? I mean, I've had friends that have had, had no work for two years. And they're struggling, and they want to do what God initiates for them to do, to take initiative to provide for the family, and they can't like, find it. They do anything, and they can't find it. And they're praying, and Where's God? Marriage trouble, a miscarriage, a falling out with a friend, an adult child that's just gone wayward, and you train them up in the way they should go, and the Bible says when they grow old, they won't depart from it, but it sure seems like they departed. Have you ever had that wonder? For them, it's nine hours. For you, maybe it's been 10 years. I don't know. Where is Jesus? Does he care? Aren't these real questions? The text says, Verse 48, he saw them. So Jesus sends, Jesus prays, Jesus sees. He he saw them. Now how did he see them in the dark and if they're in the middle of the lake? Incredible, isn't it, to consider? He saw them straining at the oars, fighting their battle. And the scriptures are clear all throughout the Bible that God sees people in their distress. He sees them. A sparrow falls to the ground and God knows it. What do we give a rip about sparrows? The scriptures tell us in Psalm 139 that God's seeing, he's engaged with what's happening as the child's being formed in the womb. He sees, he knows. He sees the hurt and pain and struggle you're carrying inside you right now when you walked in today. He knows. He sees it. Amazing. Here's a note to consider. Consider this. Meditate on this idea. Just because you can't see Jesus doesn't mean that Jesus can't see you. Okay? Just because you can't see Jesus doesn't mean that Jesus can't see you. And in our text, Jesus is seeing them in the dark, in the middle of the lake, struggling mightily. So, Jesus doesn't just pray, doesn't just see what's going on, though. There's this more. Look at verse 48 again. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking by the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they had seen him walking in the lake, they thought he was a ghost and they cried out. Verse 48 and 49 shows that Jesus arrives, or he went to them. Jesus arrives. Jesus waited until early morning. He saw them the whole time and he waited and the disciples were facing trouble for this whole time and yet he waited. It reminds me of the story that we were reminded of a few weeks ago. Do you know the story of Jesus' friends, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus? Jesus was tight with them and Lazarus had fallen sick. News got word to Jesus about that that actually he was basically sick unto death and actually he didn't run to them. He According to the feelings of Mary Martha, he he let Lazarus die and he died. Then he comes to them, and something amazing happens. He brings Lazarus to life. And we see here that Jesus sends these guys into the very trouble they're facing, and yet he allows them to do it. He's the one that sends them to it, and he prays to them, and he sees them, and now he's gonna arrive. But he waited. See, the truth is that Jesus doesn't always run to prevent every trial. Okay, So you don't have to be disheartened when he's not showing up on your time frame. But over and over again, he demonstrates to his disciples and disciples who will ever come after these ones in the text, which would mean you and I, if you are inclined. He demonstrates to his disciples his character through trials. That's what's happening. That's what he's inviting them to experience here in a second. And then in turn, his character is cultivated in the lives of his followers in the process. I'll say that again. In turn, in the midst of a trial for a Christian, his character is cultivated in your, in your life. Think about this. Um, one of God's characteristics is patience. Does patience come in a time when things are awesome for you? Or when a time when it's to be practiced? Anyone have a toddler? Anybody ever have to go to the DMV? Hmm, that hit closer to home. Okay, let me pick another one. Love. Love is a choice to yield to another's best interest. Love like this, loving like Christ, usually doesn't come upon us when things are awesome. They come upon us when we're tempted to not love as Christ. Trouble usually has a privilege of producing character. And that's what Jesus is allowing these guys to experience here. A note to write down trials and troubles are opportunity whereby he cultivates our faith. Faith is usually cultivated in trouble, not when things are awesome, and his character in us. The scriptures say that he uh, went out to them and that he was about to pass by them. Did you catch that? Or your translation might say he intended to pass by them, but they saw him. Now that translation's difficult. Many scholars debate, this is a tough passage to interpret actually, scholars debate about what the meaning of this is because it comes off, doesn't it, as if Jesus was actually now walking up to him and wanting to sneak by and then they say, oh Jesus, oh man. He intended but then they, they caught him. Mm-mm. I don't think it's like that. I think a good interpretation is this, okay. He desired to come alongside them. Some would even go as far as to lead them. Matthew Henry, a famous uh, scholar, thought his his notion was that he had to go there so they would call on him. But they don't call on him on a text. He's going to talk to them. He's arriving to them. It reminds me uh, in his desire to come alongside them, it's so that they can see who he is. And it reminds me that we see uh, in the Old Testament when God is having an encounter with or Moses is having an encounter with God, and Moses asks to see God's glory, and God says, Well, you can't like see my face because you'll die. <laughs> so I'll put you in the cleft of a rock, I'll put my hand above you, and then when I walk by, I'll pull my hand where you can see my back. That's what's happening here. He's coming alongside them that they might see him and know him for who he really is. It's the same verb. The word past there is the same Old Testament, New Testament. And one of Mark's key themes in his writing is showing Jesus' divinity to his readers. He's answering the question that we're seeking an answer to. Who is this Jesus? So I believe what the author is intending and what Christ is intending is for his disciples' hearts to open up to the understanding of who Jesus really is. He is revealing himself again to them. Jesus went to them, the text says. Actually, walking on the sea. Now, we sang a song earlier that he parts the seas that we might walk in dry land, but in this Jesus walks on the very thing that's testing their faith. He's walking on the thing that's causing the trouble. He's skilled enough, capable enough, God enough to walk right on top of their trouble. It's no problem for him. His pathway was the very object that was stretching their faith. He'll walk right on top of it. And I believe he knew exactly where they were the whole time and they were never out of his sight. That's what I believe. A principle here to write down: We will never find ourselves anywhere the Lord cannot find us." Think about the best hiding spot you ever had as a kid. My younger brother used to hide like in the dryer. I used to, when I was light enough, used to hide like in upper cabinets. It's kind of weird. There's nowhere we can hide. In fact, the Lord is our hiding place, the scriptures tell us. He's the safest place to hide. He is our refuge. A never-present help in a time of trouble. He can walk upon the very thing that we fear most then and show up in the midst of it. Nothing can stop him from being there in our time of greatest need. Your job loss, cancer comes back again. You thought you had a beat and it comes back again. He can walk right on top of that and do an amazing work in your life. If he wants to heal you, he's capable. He can work those cells away. But if he wants to cultivate his character in you through cancer so that others might believe that the Father sent the Son unto his glory, he can do that. He's capable, skilled enough, strong enough. Another note then, just because you can't break through a bad situation on your own doesn't mean that Jesus can't break through it to get to you. Just because you can't break through a bad situation on your own doesn't mean that Jesus can't break through it to get to you. This is the point of CR, Celebrate Recovery. It's a ministry that we offer. It actually should be called Celebrate Freedom. And it's for people that have ever been hurt by someone. So that's everyone. Whoever have habits in their life, habits of thinking or doing as a result of that hurt, everyone, everyone and have hang-ups with other people. And really what it is, it's inviting people into a safe community, which is actually what church should be, where they can share the distresses of life, the wins and losses of life. And they're working through the Beatitudes, Christ's teaching on what kingdom living looks like. And what happens in this ministry, when people are real, actually what should happen in the church, is that there's continual breakthrough to freedom because Christ is breaking through into their heart. Where people aren't able to stop what they do, the very thing they don't want to do, they can't stop that thing. Jesus breaks through. They yield a heart to him. Their hearts are open up to him. They recognize who he is, and he does the work. And he's going to do it here. But did the disciples get it? Look at verse 49. Let's see if the disciples see what's happening here, that God himself is coming to them. Verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the lake, or your translation might say "See," same thing, they thought he was a ghost and they cried out. Did they get that Jesus was coming beside them to show them that he is God? No. No, they didn't. To put it plainly, they didn't get it. They thought Jesus was a ghost. The Greek word here is phantasma, which means water ghost. And there was a belief at the time uh, superstition at the time that the, these kind of ghosts that night were especially heinous and terrible. And if you're any seafaring type people here, any pirates here, uh, you'd also know that there's a lot of mischievous b- beliefs about trouble in the water, okay? These guys, they're what they know is being tested. So when they saw this image, they know it cannot be a real man because men can't walk on water, right? So let's give them, let's cut them some slack. Let's have grace toward these disciples, a lot of time we look at them and think that they're idiots. It's because we know the whole story. They can't even grasp what's happening before them. It must be a ghost. There was no way to process what they saw, a person walking on water. So what did they do? The text says that they cried out, or the better word is they shrieked. Now I was gonna improv some of that for you today, but I don't wanna push the limits on our sound system. I know I've shrieked a couple times in my life. One was when I got stitches for the first time when I was seven years old, hitting high C above high C, I believe. And then one time, I bought a six-foot-six cardboard cutout of Michael Jordan and put it in our living room, but I forgot I was there. When I came home one day, I was by myself. We had a huge farmhouse at this church on the farmhouse, and we lived in there. And I saw it in the dark, and I freaked out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Jordan was awesome. My wife tried to tell me the other day that she doesn't think he's very cool, and I told her to close her mouth. If you're under the age of 20, you don't even know what I'm talking about. I might as we' well be talking about Wilt Chamberlain or George Mikan, Paul Arizon. Yeah. Shrieking. These disciples are shrieking. Why are they doing that? Because they have no concept, they have no pathway by which to, to talk about what they're seeing. We, you know, and we're not that good either at seeing things rightly if we have no ability to process what we're seeing. The closest we get to stuff like this is like when doctors say, like, we've never seen this before. We don't know how this happened, right? What they're doing is trying to explain the unexplainable. It'd be like our language to try to describe what God has created. A new solar system is found 13 billion times 5.88 trillion light years away. How do you talk about space? Right? We use ghost language. Probably. So how does Jesus engage these terrified people? In fact, the text says not only that they cry out, but then the next is that they were terrified, which actually means to like run around in a panic. So I just envision guys in a boat just doing this. <laughs> these professional fishermen, anglers, right? What does Jesus do? Look at verse 50. How is he going to engage these guys? Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage it is I." Don't be afraid. So Jesus sends them, he prays for them, he sees them, he goes to them or arrives to them and now he speaks to them and Jesus says, take courage or you might have a new translation as take heart and he says this phrase at least eight times in the New Testament, the last of which is to the apostle Paul when he was facing trouble. So Paul had a special encounter just with Jesus to be told, take heart, be encouraged. It's so pastoral, isn't it? It's so like caring and comforting but seemingly possible in the context. It's like a, if you're, if you're deathly afraid of public speaking, someone tell you, just do your best, it'll be okay. That doesn't help me at all! In their desperate time, Jesus is speaking right to their distressed hearts. Jesus later tells his disciples that in this life, you'll have trouble. Before that, he says, take heart. In this world, you'll have trouble. Take heart. I've over, I'm over all that. I'm, I've overcome all that. that. That's a promise to all people. A lot of churches don't teach that, but... Um, Jesus promises trouble in life. Anyone experience it? Take courage, he says to them. Take heart. Same same idea. And why should we take courage? Or why should we take heart, loved ones? Well, the text tells us. Jesus tells his disciples subsequently that because it is I, or another way of saying it is this: I am. It's the same idea. Some think it could mean, hey, it's me, Jesus. But because of what Mark's appealing to in his readers and because of what Jesus is appealing to actually for his disciples, I actually think he's echoing God's sentiments to Moses in Exodus chapter three when he says, I am who I am. Take courage. God's here. Take courage. I'm, it's me. As a follower of Jesus, why should we take courage in the midst of trouble? Or why take courage when you can't figure out like, what's happening right in front of you. Your world has just been rocked a loss, a separation, a firing, whatever. How can you take courage in the midst of that? Why should, why should we take courage when our troubles are so overwhelming and the peace that's promised in Christ seems so evading? That's real life, isn't it? Why should we take courage? Because God is with you. But you have to like, turn to that to actually let it, like, rest in your soul. You have to, you can't just know it intellectually, like, for an essay at a Christian school. You, you have to, like, believe it to have any effect on your courage, okay? Why should we have courage? Because God is with you. Jesus says, I'll never leave you, forsake you. Lo, I'll be with you to the very end of the age. And we know that in this age, God sends his spirit to dwell within those that are followers of him. For those that turn from their sin, repent, and say, Jesus, I need you desperately as my Savior, Lord of my life, please. God sends his spirit to reside within. So not only is God omnipresent all around you, but also that his spirit dwells within those that have yielded their lives to Christ. It's a promise. It's a sealing work that he does. He stays with you forever. He's with you. He's with you. So the very presence of God is what gives us courage to face any trial. Those that are being martyred for their faith around the world, may be here soon, what gives them the courage to face that. The presence of God, and also the presence of God in the other brothers and sisters around them, usually. We see that in Scripture. Then Jesus says something else, then look at your text again. Take courage. "I am," or "It is I." And then what does He say next, loved ones? Don't be afraid. This is a command given by God over a hundred times, Genesis to Revelation. Now, why would God have to command the same thing over and over again? Does anybody get exasperated with their children having to say the same thing twice? He says it over a hundred times. One person counted 135. Why would he have to do that? The answer is because we're afraid. <laughs> because we get afraid, don't we? We do. Think about your life growing up when a storm or trouble came and I don't know if you were ever afraid of like thunder and lightning. Would you ever call out to anybody? When there was trouble, when you were really sick, would you ever like call out to somebody? I would, uh, I would call out to my mom, but it would just go like from quiet to louder. Mom, mommy, mommy, mommy. What, what? We had the same in my home. When we had a storm, we had a storm last night. We had storms in the past and the kids rush in and let's say, I'm afraid the thunder's gonna get me. And I'll try to use logic. I don't know why that doesn't help them. I'm afraid the lightning's gonna get me. Well, he actually had more chance to win. Okay. The thing that actually brings them comfort is the presence of a loved one, mom or dad or a caregiver, you know? That's what it is, isn't it? It's the same with the Lord. I, with my youngest. My youngest is five years old. I think he's around like 64 pounds. And um, he is still learning to trust us. In his mind, he's more like a two-and-a-half and, and three-year-old. So there's a lot. Of, what I'm doing is I push it a little bit. Not everyone is a fan of this in my home. And so what I do is I'll pick him up, and he hates being lifted high. Now, if you were to do it to him, he would um, humor you to allow, try to take care of you. It's a form of codependency, even as a child. But with me, he's real, and he's very fearful. So what he says now in his ability is, I'm safe, I'm safe. So I have him up here. I'm pushing. I'm the one that's in control. I have him. I've put him up. I've sent him up. And he says, am I safe? Am I safe? And I just use my voice. You're safe. You're safe. But here's a big difference of many between me as a father and the Lord. Is I can't calm a storm. I can't step out on top of the trouble. I can't walk on the very thing that would cause distress for my children. I can't heal brokenness. I can't torque a heart. I can't redeem, but Jesus can do it all. He can calm the actual physical storm on the sea and the troubled soul with his presence. And he says, don't, don't be afraid. See, what's happening here for the disciples is another opportunity to recognize Jesus for who he really is and what his presence means for those who know him. For those who are in a relationship with him, there's always the promise of his presence. Whenever we face fears and troubles, the storms of life, I am with you. I am with you. So if you belong to Christ, which is a relationship, a decision that you make to enter in with him because of what he's done for you and because of his great love and by his grace, if you belong to Christ, you never need to fear, no matter how terrifying the circumstances. Let's ask the question, The Bible study questions again. Who sent the disciples into the boat, into the sea? Answer, Jesus. Jesus sent them out and then they obeyed. So here's another principle. If you were in the place of obedience, and they are, weren't they? Then you have nothing to fear. Not because you'll always get what you want in the end, but because you'll have whom you need in Jesus. Okay? So it's not a promise that, there is a promise of trouble, and then there's a promise that you'll have him. Even if he sent you into obedience, you obeyed him into a place of trouble where your life was taken from you, you don't even have to fear death because that just ushers you into the kingdom. Hmm. Jesus says, you can trust me in the midst of every circumstance. That's what he's showing them. That's what this illustration is about. But have you ever thought to yourself, well, if I could just see Jesus, if I could just hear Jesus like they did, then I would never be afraid again. If Jesus was just speaking, then then I'd be okay. Let me share this with you. Write this down and think about it this week. Just because you can't hear the audible voice of Jesus does not mean that Jesus doesn't speak or hasn't spoken. Now his word is is complete and his spirit, when he speaks and convicts, he he always affirms what the scriptures are already saying. See, many of the words that are spoken to disciples are actually true for all disciples who ever follow these 12, after these 12s but for them to actually be a comfort to you, for Christ's words to be a comfort to you, you'd actually have to know them. And this is why you probably have like friends or family that encourage you to get into God's word for yourself. It's like to your benefit. Reading, Bible reading isn't for, like God needs it. It's for you to get to know him and then know who you are in light of him and who you're not in light of him. Hmm? So he is speaking. He speaks through his word. He speaks through the power of his Holy Spirit by conviction and edification and truths of what Scripture said, what Jesus has said. He is the word himself. But to be a comfort to you, you'd have to know them. You have to believe in them and then seek to live by them. But Jesus doesn't just pray, see, arrive, and speak to them, you know? Look what he does next, verse 51. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. And they were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. So what does Jesus do next? He sends them, he prays for them, he sees them. He arrives, he speaks, and now he joins them. Jesus joins and saves them. He got into the boat with them and joins them in the trouble. And what does the text say? At that point, the wind stopped. Now in the book of John, I believe the account says this, and they arrived immediately to the shore. But the wind stops. What does the text say that Jesus said to the wind? Say it. Nothing. We've seen it before that he says something to the wind. This time he steps in the boat and it's like he's in charge. He doesn't have to say a thing. He's in charge of the storm. Illustration over wind. You, you may go back for a lunch break. Disciples, have you learned anything yet? He just steps right into the situation that they're in and it just dissipates by his command of thought. I don't know. He doesn't say it. There's no red here in my, in, in my Bible right there. That Jesus, there's no storms in life that Jesus can't, that cannot calm with his, with his presence. Look again at all that Jesus has done. Think about it. Write it down. He prays. He sees. He arrives. He speaks. He joins. He saves. Oh man, do you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of. It's just another example of how Jesus Himself is God, and He's consistently the same. Yesterday, today forever. Look back long ago at Exodus chapter 3 as God is speaking to Moses about what he's going to do with his people. Now, mind you, when God's engaging Moses here in Exodus chapter 3, his people have been in slavery for hundreds of years. And in our text, the disciples have been in trouble maybe for nine hours. Is God just, though? Look at Exodus with me. This is the Lord. This is where we get the name of God that we sang this morning, Yahweh. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey in the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Prezerites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I've got nothing to offer. And God said, I'll be with you. Does this sound familiar? And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? <laughs> awesome test, isn't it? What should I tell them, God? And the Lord is so gracious to Moses. God says to Moses, I am who I am. Tell them that, man. This is what you are to say to the Israelites I am has sent you. The same phrasing that we see in Jesus saying, Take heart, take courage, it is I. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that one that you know and remember, he sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. I read this to you to show you the similarities between that and what Jesus is helping his disciples experience to say simply this, Jesus is God. And what is found in Jesus is our greatest need and hope, and that's what he does. And Jesus has found salvation, hope, eternal peace, and more. That's what he's offering to those that want to engage in a relationship with him. So how do the disciples respond to Jesus? What does our text say? The text says this. The disciples were amazed. And why were they amazed again then? Answer, because they didn't understand the implications of what's been going on the first day they met him until yesterday when he fed these thousands of people. They just, they can't, they can't understand it. They can't put a belief yet to what they're seeing when someone provides an all-you-can-eat seafood buffet and then walks on the water. And when we look at them, we think about them, we think, man, these guys are idiots. But we're, we're just like them. In fact, we are on the other side of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the completed scriptures. And yet we've, we're afraid and we struggle What courage? And we struggle for taking God at his word. And why does that happen? The text tells us. Did you catch it? Why didn't they understand what happened with the fish and loaves? And why do we still have trouble? Answer. Their hearts were hard. It means they can't put together what Christ does and who Christ is yet. They don't have quite an answer yet to the question, who is this Jesus? They couldn't make the connection between his doing and his, his identity. And what Jesus is teaching them, again, is this, is if you have me, you have all you need. Let's close the text. Look at verse 53. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick and mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into the villages, towns and countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let him touch Them to let let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. So now you have this an incredible encounter for the disciples, an amazing illustration of God's of Christ's deity, his power, his presence. The book of John says in the story that they arrived immediately to the shore, like appeared. That's actually a space time continuum issue for Einstein. He got in the boat. When I think happened is that they actually arrived. That's what I believe because the text says it. He's over space and time. Hmm. Then they arrive to the shore and people start seeing Jesus. And what do the people want from Jesus? They want to experience the deity of Christ as the disciples had the opportunity to do? No. The crowds want healing. The crowds want food. The crowds want to see a show. The crowds want a temporary fix. They want a fix. But Jesus is offering something eternal. Jesus invites his followers into a relationship with him, a relationship with God himself. So Jesus doesn't just give bread, he's the bread of life. Jesus doesn't just heal, he is the way to ultimate healing, eternal healing. He doesn't just calm the storm, he is himself our peace. So our biggest need in life, and our biggest need in trouble and trial, is actually Jesus himself. And he offers himself, and some people want him, and some people just want what he can give. They don't actually want anything to do with him. They want to run their lives, get me out of this trouble, fix me, I'm in a jam here, I'll see ya. They want a genie, they want Santa. And Jesus is offering himself, God is offering himself to you, a relationship with you, an active, vibrant, faith-filled relationship with him. Jesus is praying for you, Jesus sees you, Jesus arrives right on time, Jesus speaks, Jesus is near, Jesus saves. You can trust him, I can trust him. Will we? Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we come before you. We recognize our desperate need of you. We thank you for your word, Father. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the display of your love and patience and grace that we've seen in this text, but also every day in our lives. God, give us faith that we might walk by it and live for you, for your glory. I pray for each person here this morning, God, that they would live for you. For anyone that's here, Lord, that has not yet given their lives to Christ, that has not said, Jesus, forgive me of my sin, I repent, I turn to you. Please save me. God, I ask that today would be the day of salvation. And for those, Father, that are are in Christ, God, I ask that you would help them consider their lives in light of the trouble they face, but also, bigger than that, in light of the truth that we've heard this morning. Your promised presence, your trustworthiness in arriving right on time and what you're doing, cultivating your character in us. And Lord, thank you for doing that for the sake of others that they might believe, Father, and how we respond in life that they might believe that you, Father, sent your son by how we live and love one another. So we just, uh, we give our life to you collectively. This church is yours. And God, we ask that you would guide and lead and change us that we might live for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.